We've never done a great job covering grains on this podcast. I've got zero experience with crops in some ways, fitting in annuals on such a large scale too into our whole farm solutions or climate solutions model is a difficult thing to do. In other ways, it's pretty easy. If you think of it, a no-till crop production would be a good example of this. Since crop production is here to stay, researchers are looking into ways to make perennial cereal grains a tool in producers' repertoire to help reduce their carbon footprint, support ecosystems, and make a living. I'm Derek Leahy, and this is Rural Roots to Climate Solutions. I'm talking to Aaron Daly today, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta researching perennial rye. Aaron and the rest of her team are running field trials on perennial rye at the Breton Plots in Breton, Alberta, which is a really cool spot. We just checked it out a few weeks ago. Uh, They also have another site in Edmonton. Now, my memory is not the greatest. I can't really remember how I discovered the perennial cereal trials at Breton Plots last year. I do remember how surprised I was to find out that there was such a thing as perennial rye or perennial wheat. And then I looked at the grass and I realized that I'm a complete idiot. Of course, there's such a thing as perennial rye or perennial wheat. Uh, leading me into my first question, Aaron, I'm just kind of curious. how, like, wh- Where was the interest? Why did you decide to research perennial rye? Um, I guess I just sort of fell into it when I was looking to research something that has to do with sort of food security, more um, a more holistic approach to treating food production and farm management and having a PhD project that incorporated sort of the practical aspect instead of just the scientific aspect, because I find that it would be discouraging spending six years studying something so theoretical and minuscule, which is really interesting for a lot of people. But I, I really wanted my research to go towards something with an application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I um, I actually just used Google one day while I was supposed to be working at my unfulfilling consulting job. And <laughs> uh, I Googled food security, um, environmental protection, soils, which is my primary interest is the soil health. And I found my supervisor at the university. I emailed him and harassed him until he met with me. He's a really busy man. And from there, he said, I have my hands on some perennial rye seed. And I was like, okay, like to do what with? And he sort of, we sort of came up with the idea of testing this perennial cereal in the context of improving soil health, soil physical quality, as well as the potential that it could, and this is more on the theoretical side, that it could actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions from farms. Yeah. And then aside from that personal interest-wise, I thought a perennial grain could provide so much food security in places where there's um, less availability to seed every year, less money to buy seed every year, fertilizer, pesticides, that kind of thing. So it kind of combined all of my interests into one practical application. Okay. Yeah. Like, do you think it had anything to do with the fact that they, I know you said your grandfather was a grain producer for a while. Like, mm-hmm. Do you think there's any connection to like, you know, it sounds like you have some fond childhood memories of the grain farm you were on. Yeah. Um, I guess 
I I was never really super involved in the farming, probably for the best. I was never allowed to do any of the <laughs> actual farming. But I remember, like, as a kid growing up um, in the country, I, I always felt like I was missing out on, like, the city kid things of riding your bike and, and having neighborhood friends. But I had dogs and soil. <laughs> Which sounds so dorky, but <laughs> it was like, what? What is there to do today? Go, go dig around. Go wander in the fields. Go do something outside. And so I sort of gained an appreciation for food production and how necessary it is, and also how, as much as profitability is a fundamental concern for farmers, they know far more than any scientist about their land, about their soil, and conserving their soil resources. So I. I guess that's where it came from. Like mm. my my dad and, and my uncle still live on the farm. They split it up. And I'll go home and talk about some really cool new research topic. And they look at me like I have a third head. But then third head, a second head. I, I didn't realize from. I a second one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll go home and talk to them about this cool new research topic about uh, all of this, uh, about soil health, this, that, uh, really niche topics. And then they'll bring something up about the practical side of farming and mm -hmm. I'll be totally lost. So I feel like I learned a lot from them and, and that kind of is humbling, but also piqued my interest. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's really great because I don't know if all scientists have that opportunity to kind of like run what they're researching by, like the, the demographic they're doing that research Ex for. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I get a lot of, oh, that's, that's really nice. That's really cool. But I know more than you and it's humbling and <laughs> helpful actually. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and thanks to Aaron, I learned that you can take swimming lessons in canola seeds. I had no idea this was the thing out here in Alberta. <laughs> very dangerous <laughs> I don't recommend but <laughs> must have been kind of fun though. yeah <laughs> and yeah I'm just uh, curious how did the whole experiment at the Edmonton side or the Breton Plot side begin was it really just uh, your supervisor who's Guillermo Hernandez? Was it Guillermo Hernandez Ramirez ah, yeah it's a mouthful yeah. okay uh, it was just literally he came across some seeds that been sent to him, or was there a bit more of a story there? Um, I think he had worked in collaboration, uh, research collaboration with um, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada for a long time, and, and we were able to uh, obtain some seed from the Lethbridge Research Centre, which is actually the research centre um, that developed our specific perennial rye seed. Mm -hmm. And specific to my supervisor, he's very interested in investigating different cropping systems in a practical way to discern differences primarily in greenhouse gases um, and then secondarily in the soil physical quality benefits that they could provide. So uh, we had this opportunity to design an experiment with sort of a continuum of a traditional annual seed. So we have an annual rye at our site a fall rye, so a biennial rye, which planted in the fall, obviously harvested in the next fall, and then our perennial, which ideally will last for at least three growing seasons after the one planting season. So we'll be able to see um, if there are significant differences when you make that transition to a perennial cereal. And we chose the two sites partially because of availability, but also in addition, when you have a limited amount of time to do an experiment, having more than one site gives you more 
sight years. So mm-hmm. while they're different and they'll give us different data, they'll give us more of a complete picture of how these effects could manifest on different soil types, different climates, different rainfall regimes. So that's sort of how that came about. Cool. And do you know if there was a specific reason why like, uh, you guys went with the rye as opposed to wheat? Yeah, um, availability. Okay. Yeah. So at the time, the Lethbridge Research Center was working largely with perennial rye. Um, I know that lots of research institutions are actually working with perennial wheat currently. And I believe even the Lethbridge Research uh, Center is starting to transition more into a perennial wheat. But the perennial rye was what was available at the time because perennial cereals are actually a fairly new concept. So we sort of went with what was available. Curious, where do these seeds come from? I could go on about niche history topics forever. I think (laughs) um, actually perennial cereal breeding started in about the 1920s in Russia. And that uh, kind of fell through the wayside when um, wars and such broke out. But so starting with Russia and then moving more recently to Germany, they started working on a perennial rye and we sort of took their starter. And yeah, so the way that our perennial rye was developed was through hybridization of an annual rye with a perennial native grass. So a perennial rye. I believe specifically our rye is called Ace, the varietal is called Ace One, and it's a cross between Sea uh, Cal Cereal, so just your annual rye, and Sea Cal Montanum, which is a wild perennial rye. Um, the other route that researchers have been taking is really interesting is the domestication route, so choosing a grain or a grass that's native and slowly taking that perennial grass and breeding it for the traits that would be useful for large-scale production for agriculture. Mm. Um, one of the most prevalent ones right now is actually called um, perennial wheatgrass. Okay. And the land, the land Institute in the United mm. States is doing a lot of work with perennial wheatgrass right now. It's still early, but it's really interesting that they're sort of developing these markets for such a niche product. Like um, I know there's a beer now that's made with just perennial wheatgrass. Wow. And it's like a native grass to North America mm-hmm. they're using. Yeah. And they've, okay. they've, they've domesticated it and it's growing and they're making beer out of it. So good cause, like a really good cause. <laughs> it's important. There's not enough beer in the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious, uh, sorry, I, I know you explained this to me before, mm-hmm. uh, but when you say domesticating it, I keep mm-hmm. thinking of like domesticating like a wild horse or something like that. But yeah, I don't know, like, how does that work with grasses exactly? Um, I am not a plant breeder. Fair so enough, my, like my layman understanding of it is get a perennial grass, select a perennial grass with some beneficial or intriguing traits that you say that could be useful. Take that, uh, breed it over generations and continue selecting for those um, for those offspring that show greater seed production or more prolific um, biomass mm. production as well as um, fertility and then take that over years and years. So it is a really complex, it's much more complex process than what I just explained, but okay. that's my my basic understanding of it it's it's quite in, it's quite intense yeah darn good explanation <laughs>
So, uh, yeah, I was curious, what exactly are you guys testing for? I know there's a few specific things that you're looking for in your research. Yeah, primarily my interest is, again, with uh, greenhouse gas emissions that could we could see reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, specifically with respect to nitrous oxide. And secondarily, um, an interesting question we're investigating is the potential for soil physical quality improvements with respect to transitioning to a perennial cereal grain crop. So the interest with that lies with we know there are fundamental differences that occur when there's an annual cereal directly adjacent even to a native pasture land that's been uh, grazed or even a native hayland that's been hayed for 50 years. We know that the the land that's been left as a grassland or for hay has better bulk density, increased porosity, better water infiltration, increased total carbon, increased total nitrogen, even with those removals as hay compared to an annual cereal. So we'd like to see if we can see some of those benefits that we see from a perennial stand in a perennial cereal stand relative to an annual stand. In addition, as I was mentioning before with the greenhouse gases, um, perennials are phenologically and physiologically different than their annual counterparts. Mm -hmm. So that means they utilize water resources, sunlight, nitrogen in the soil, as well as their timing is different. And because of that, we might see potential for reductions in nitrous oxide emissions, which is of interest to me because nitrous oxide is actually a greenhouse gas that's 298 times more potent than carbon dioxide on a mass basis, and it persists in the atmosphere for much longer as well. Mm. So while it's not, it doesn't have as much publicity as, say, CO2, it's it's significantly more capable of warming our environment in smaller quantities. And what we see is the largest emitter of nitrous oxide is agricultural production. Mm. Yeah, so... I, my hypotheses specifically deal with the idea that a perennial crop has earlier accesses to soil moisture, soil nitrogen, and sunlight, and all those resources, they're able to uptake resources that then aren't available for microbes to transform residual nitrogen in the soil to nitrous oxide relative to an annual cereal. Okay, well, I know you explained this uh, yesterday when we talked on the phone, but that that difference between, so there's nitrification and denitrification. And I just found it really interesting because what you brought up in that yeah. conversation was that since it's a perennial, that can get at that nitrogen right away mm -hmm. because when things start thawing, I guess, it's almost like the perfect condition for nitrogen to be released, but you could exactly. capture it right away with an annual. Maybe I should just let you explain it. I, I asked think the you question. did it pretty well. You come, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel confident, so maybe so, take a crack at it. <laughs> with respect to nitrous oxide, we see it in pulses um, as opposed to continuous emissions like with CO2. Um, that's what makes it so difficult to measure, actually, and why it's so interesting, because we see these massive explosions, say, of microbial activity when the conditions are just right, because the processes that lead, the processes and factors that lead to nitrous oxide emission are much more complicated than, say, the processes that lead to carbon dioxide emission. So what we do know is that it's a cocktail of nutrient availability, high soil moisture, low soil oxygen, 
that can lead to these processes of nitrification and denitrification, which are natural processes that occur in the soil for microbes. And what that does is lead to pulse emission events of nitrous oxide. Um, when we think about these pulses, like you mentioned, a large contingent or like a large proportion of our yearly nitrous oxide budget comes from that spring melt in these parts of the world. And that's because there's soil nitrogen, there's soil carbon, there's a lot of water, and there's low soil, um, there's low soil aeration. And because of that, we don't have plants actively uptaking that water and that, um, and those nutrients at that time. And that leads to pulses. And what perennials could do is start growing immediately when the snow melts, immediately when the temperature is high enough for these perennials to start sprouting, uptaking this nitrogen and this water and actually reducing the emissions that we could see. Hmm. And in addition, utilizing these resources that aren't utilized by annual crops. Mm. So in, a, in an economic perspective, you're, you're getting more out of your fertilizer, out of your spring melt than you would in an annual yeah, no, it's just, it's amazing when you think about the amount of fertilizer that is used and that mm -hmm. it's, a lot of it's already there in the ground. Unfortunately, we're losing it every spring. Mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah. that is the amazing thing about perennials that they can kind of tap in. I'm sure they can't tap into all of it, but at least they can tap into some yeah, of it. Yeah, hopefully. That's what we're, we're investigating right now, that they're actually able to utilize these resources that would otherwise just be lost. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. So you guys are looking at uh, reducing uh, nitrous oxide. We're looking at sort of soil structure and how that relates mm -hmm. to water and air. Uh, I know the experiment's only been going on for maybe a year, a little bit longer than mm -hmm. that. Any results you can talk about or what, what you're finding? Um, I'm hesitant to say this for sure or that for sure, but one of the interesting results that we've come across, and and this pertains to both hypotheses, is that we did soil root sampling to one meter last summer after only about mm, three months of growth for the spring perennial and the fall rye. And what we found was that the roots penetrated deeper and there was a significantly greater root mass in that perennial crop relative to the fall as well as the annual, even though technically at that time last summer, the perennial and the fall had had the same amount of growing time. Mm. So we see that the perennial was able to invest more resources below ground. And from that, we were able to correlate with our soil moisture measurements. And the perennial was actually tapping into water resources deeper in the profile. We were seeing greater depletions of soil water deeper in the profile relative to a fall and a spring. And that was sort of interesting with respect to last year when we had a really, really dry spring. So that was one of our really interesting results with respect to the nitrous oxide measurements that are ongoing weekly or biweekly for the next three years. One year of data might not be enough to make any conclusions because, like I said, um, I'd like to see more differences in the treatments this year and next because last year was our um, our first year. So potentially there would really be not a lot of difference yet because the fall and the perennial weren't able to differentiate themselves yet. So yeah, yeah that's something that we have to wait and see, but as soon as I find out, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yields, any difference in the yields? Yeah, noticed? absolutely. So there's been, uh, for my site specifically, we've seen 
significantly higher biomass yields with respect to the perennial as opposed to the fall and the spring rye, which is to be expected with a perennial crop. Mm. Um, we did see lower grain yields in the perennial as opposed to the fall and the spring, which again is to be expected. There's one theory that um, we're also testing is that says the first year uh, grain yields will be lower because that first year of the perennial, it's establishing itself. It's putting those resources below ground more than it is above ground. So perhaps in the second year, we'll actually see increases relative to last year in the perennial now that it's more established. Mm. Yeah. But absolutely prolific biomass. Yeah. Okay. So it's turning out to be a pretty good like straw crop, uh, mm -hmm. but right now it doesn't quite compete with an annual when it comes to actual like grain. Yeah. Yeah. And but there are some there are some studies out there that have done economic analyses, and I'm not an economist by any means, <laughs> but because you're reducing your seed costs, you're reducing your labor costs, there are studies that say that to be viable, a perennial grain crop doesn't need to produce comparable grain yields to a fall or a spring crop if you're using it primarily for grain because you're saving money in other areas, even inputs like fertilizer. Potentially. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was kind of like, because well, you were at the same workshop I was at when Christine Nichols said we had to stop using the Y word because we're always talking about yields. And I don't know, not the entire crowd agreed with her on that, but I thought she did bring up a really good point that we should really be focusing more on that profitability part. Yeah, that's a very scientific take as in don't focus on yields when you tell somebody who relies on <laughs> yields to, I, I knew that wasn't going to be a popular take when you're talking to people who actually farm yeah it was interesting yeah really interesting and i loved your talk yeah because of our because my primary research question centers around those nitrous oxide emissions i wanted to keep everything comparable at least for this field trial and so we're applying the same amount of fertilizer which is uh 56 kilograms per hectare of a urea ESN blend that's broadcast at the start of each year to the perennial, the fall, and the spring crops. We also have controls without fertilizer to see how those impacts are, or how that fertilization is impacting uh, root growth and, and seed yields and stuff like that. But mm. we are maintaining a constant fertilization level to see if we see those reductions in nitrous oxide emissions. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the, any like, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides using any of that? No. no. Okay. Um, Interesting. The thing about research, especially um, small plot research, which my plots are, are, are relatively small, mm. is that there are lots of undergrads to hand weed your plots for you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what every farm needs. They just turn into yeah. a research station, get yeah, a bunch of undergrads, and the youth are back people, into farming. Offer people work experience. Ah, yeah. I'm going to write this down. <laughs> uh, and I guess, yeah, what we, we had the conversation about this the other day, too. I was thinking about like, desiccation because, you know, there's you do see quite a bit of desiccation going on uh, crop production, but I don't know if that would work with a perennial because you don't want to kill the plant because you want it to grow back. So I'm assuming there's no need for desiccation when it comes to perennial grains, but I could be completely wrong. No, I would say there's, yeah, no, n as opposed to no need, but no way. Yeah, yeah exactly. when you're considering one of the things also that we are investigating is, and we've 
we've already learned so many things is how to manage a grain that stays on your land for three straight years mm. because they're you'll have to adjust your management practices. You might have to adjust your equipment to maintain the health of this crop because you can't go and till your land or desiccate. um, So that's one of the things that's still, I guess, part of our field trials is just even the logistics of managing a perennial crop. That's actually my next question. And like, I know you didn't grow up as a crop farmer or anything like that, uh, but I'm just wondering if you can like theorize how it might change the growing season for somebody who is a grain producer. Like clearly you don't have to do seeding at the start of the year. Uh, I guess you'd have to do it once every few years, but it wouldn't be a regular thing. But even like, I don't know, like harvest times or like how many cuts you can get. I'm just curious <laughs> if you have some ideas how it's going to change things. Yeah. So again, I'm sure there's lots of um, people out here out there that could answer this better than I could, but absolutely. They're not in this room right now, so you're the best right, person. So yeah. I, I like that. Two people and I'm the expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess in the fall, you'd seed it your first year. Ideally, we are looking for at least three years of growth from this crop. So you're mm-hmm. looking at three years without seed purchases, three years without um, spring seeding. There is the question of fertilizer application, and that would be a broadcast application in your subsequent years. And so that would need to still occur spring or fall, whichever the preference is for the producer. Um, With respect to harvest times, we found last year, if you're waiting for all of your grains to mature to the right stage, as comparable to, say, a fall, you're going to wait all year because the thing about a perennial is that it continually is sending up tillers. It's continuously flowering. It's continually producing. So what we did was we picked a time when the majority of our grain was starting to ripen and we went with it. Um, I think depending on what you were going to use the crop for, Mm. you would change your management decisions. I've done some reading recently with respect to, say, the multifunctionality and the potential for this crop to serve as both um, food and fiber for livestock as well as a grain crop. So in there, you would get another cut out of it somewhere in the mid-season there and allow it to regrow before harvesting it again in the fall. Okay. So, yeah, I think it I think it really depends on what your main goal is for the crop. And, and there's a couple things that it could be used for. Mm. Okay. Mm. And um, I'm just wondering, because that diversification, get, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, especially in Alberta. I'm um, just wondering if something like a perennial grain could open things up for diversification. And the question mainly comes from sort of what you brought up before, that this mm-hmm. crop can be used for multiple things. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with a scientist who's also working in the same field as you. And what he said was, at least the research he was coming up with was, it seems to indicate that these perennial grains work better when you integrate livestock into them. And, you know, like intercropping is becoming a big thing, too. I'm just wondering if this could help facilitate farms becoming a bit more diversified. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I think that's the answer in the long run. Um, right now, we're growing it as a monocrop to keep it comparable with our continuum of cultivars, the spring and the fall rye. But I don't think a perennial monocrop is still the answer to farm profitability and at the same time, environmental sustainability. So 
including um, intercropping or grazing or even um, just planting the perennials in the areas of your land where you see reduced yields with your annuals, like sloped areas to reduce erosion or areas around wetlands to clean that water and provide actual um, services that we're not traditionally thinking of. Mm. I don't, I think that perennials are one solution to multifunctionality and diversification, but I, I think that we need to do more research in this area. Yeah. Okay. If the uh, trials turn out to be a success, I'm just curious what the next steps are from here. Graduating. Graduating. Okay. (laughs) Um, First step, graduate. (laughs) Second step, ideally, because I, I love my project. I love that I get to wander around in a field for eight hours a day and call it science. It's excellent. Um, so ideally, I would love if these trials turn out to be a success, I would love to take this further and and continue to test some of my my next hypotheses, I guess, because like I was mentioning, I don't think we have the answer just yet with a perennial monocrop to to ecological diversification and, and farm diversification. Um, I'd like to investigate differing nitrogen rates. Because we know if we know that these perennials are more efficient in utilizing these resources, do we need to apply the same fertilizer rates as we would on an annual crop? I'd like to investigate how these perennial cereals do in an intercropping situation or a mixed stand situation. One researcher suggested that the best way to reduce um, pests and diseases with respect to a perennial grain, because that's a big question when you leave a grain on soil for three years, how those pathogens and pests and insects are going to build up and be able to reduce your yields and some um, increase your losses. One researcher actually suggested that the best way to do that would actually be incorporating multiple cultivars or multiple species of a perennial grain into the same plot. Mm-hmm. So I have lots more questions where just starting sort of square one because it is such new research. Mm. Yeah. Also, like that one question you brought up uh, that like if it like it goes too well and it turns out that like perennial grains just like take over like native prairie or something yeah. like that. Like what the heck are we going to do about that? Because then in theory, I guess, yeah, you've almost like created another weed or something. Mm-hmm. So there's, I guess, a upside and a downside to everything. Yeah. Yeah. There always is upsides and, and there are potential negatives. Like, yeah, it could become invasive maybe not invasive but it could be too successful and start Mm. taking over native grasslands it could but that's that's it's probably pretty unlikely but yeah uh, it's probably pretty (laughs) unlikely but it is a question i've got before and and again the question of uh pest management and and um pathogen management is a big question that i've got and my favorite answer to that one is that when you have a healthier soil, a healthier system, you have more resilient soil and a more resilient system. Mm. So if if you're taking um, a cropping system that's inherently improving or maintaining your soil physical quality, your soil biological qualities, which we know perennial systems do, they will inherently be more resistant to pathogens and pests. Okay. Yeah. I guess we'll just see what happens. Yeah. 
don't know if this is a crazy question, but I, like, could you see here in Alberta just like a full-scale switch to from like annuals to entirely perennial grains? No, I hope not, no. because I don't think that switching the the reason why we see some of the problems that we do with agriculture today is that we've we've sort of focused on one way to do agriculture. And we haven't diversified. Mm -hmm. So I think that the answer is less um, switching entirely to a perennial monocrop, say, from an annual monocrop. And it's more about perennials fit this soil better, perennials fit this growing conditions better. We could uh, grow perennials here. We still need some annuals. I'm, I'm not going to say that every annual crop is able to be perennialized. I'm not sure. I know they haven't worked on every one. Mm. Um, as well, um, the answer lies in diversification and crop rotations. And your perennial cereals could just be one portion of your crop rotation. And then you plant annuals a few years and then you go undergo this perennial cereal for three years and build up those soil resources again. Mm. So I don't think... All perennials is the answer, and I don't think all annuals is the answer. I think we're moving in the right direction, hopefully, but there's still a lot of research that needs to go into what works best for where, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's also like, wait, we're not 100% sure if this is going to work in Alberta, too. We just no. might not have the right climate here for it. Like, yeah. I, I know like the Land Institute, they're based in... Kansas? Yes. Okay, so yeah. probably a tick bit warmer down there. And I yeah. know they've had a bit of success, but it'll be interesting because I know I've heard the experiments here. I think University of Manitoba might be doing a bit too, I thought. I believe so. I think they're, again, not 100%, but I believe they're working with perennial wheat. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll yeah. get a bit of that out here too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just I like we just don't know quite yet if this yeah. is suitable to Alberta. And, exactly. You know, if it's not, I guess there's no point forcing it either, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's still lots more avenues to investigate to make farming a little bit more sustainable for the future. Yeah. Oh, uh, totally. But I don't know. I think I might actually try out grain farming and perennials. It's become a good thing. I just, the one thing that's always turned me off is just like the hours on the tractor. I just, I can't, I can't sit that long. I get, yeah. I don't know, I get. It, I guess I'm like a five-year-old. I just can't do it. So I, I like that. Like, oh, there's no seeding involved. Perfect. I don't have to sit on the tractor all day. Yeah. Although I guess when you harvest, all right, maybe it's not going to be for me in general. <laughs> um, uh, last thing. So we, we began the conversation like you were talking about your interest in perennial grains was because of your interest in the food system. Mm -hmm. And I just wondering, like, what are your thoughts? How will perennial grains help the food system out? If we find that they are a viable cereal crop, again, you're going to see reduced um, soil erosion, reduced soil degradation. You're going to see reduced seeding costs, potentially reduced nitrogen costs. So you're going to make um, a crop that's more available for people. And this, again, is, is so down the line, but I would love to see a crop that's more available for people in less food secure countries mm. yeah that would be ideal for me something that you could plant in the ground and it came back three years in a row and you didn't have to go buy seed go through seeding like you said it mm. takes hours and days and months and in addition i think that producing food for our um, cattle industry Again, if we could do that in a more sustainable way, mm. I'm not a cattle producer or, or an animal 
um, scientists at all. But I think if we make these minor improvements along the lines, along that conveyor belt of producing the final product, you're going to see a more sustainable product in the end. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based project empowering agricultural producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops and farm field days, produces this podcast series, and hosts webinars. If you like this podcast episode and you want to learn more about perennial cereal grains, Rural Roots will be hosting a webinar with me, Erin Daly, in July. For more information and to register, please go to the website at www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots team is made up of Angie O'Connor, Marie Galanka, Evelyn Tanaka, and Derek Leahy. Today's episode was recorded at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media in Red Deer. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta, and remember what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.